You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so uh, today is Palm Sunday, hence the palms and the branches. Um, Hang on to those branches in front of you. We'll explain, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But today's the day the Christian church really pauses every year to remember Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, setting in motion really the events of the Holy Week that lead right up to the cross on Friday and eventually the empty tomb on Friday. Sunday. Now, typically, this is a day where the palm branch is waved as a symbol of Christ's victory, but there's actually another tradition involving the palm branches that churches throughout the world and throughout generations have continued to participate in, and it's interestingly linked to next year's Ash Wednesday. The palm branches aren't just waved, they're literally burnt. The branches are collected, that's what we're going to do today. They're stored, they're dried over the course of almost a year, and then they're incinerated in order to create the ashes for Ash Wednesday. And I find this progression really interesting. In a lot of ways, it's actually symbolic, from palms to ashes. Last year's greatest hopes of triumph reduced down to dust. And as if that's not enough... 
those ashes, the remnants of our greatest dreams, are quite literally rubbed in our faces in the shape of a cross. We come out to greet Jesus, waving the symbol of life and victory, but we are soon greeted with the symbol of death. We look here in John, shouts of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King of Israel, are almost immediately followed by this strange conversation about dying and being pressed into the dirt. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? (laughs) We are praising your life. We are praising what you're going to do. Why are you talking about dying and going into the dirt, losing one's life to find it? What do you mean? No, 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 Jesus, I came to you for life. My Christian friend, my Christian neighbor, they promised me abundant life. I came here for life and joy and freedom. What are you talking about dying here? See, like the crowds here in John, we come to Jesus with who we anticipate him to be and all the great things that he's going to do for us. But then our greatest expectations are quite literally brought to nothing. What I hope that we will see this morning is that actually this progression is for our good and this progression is for our lasting joy, that when our greatest expectations are brought to nothing, it actually opens us up to the possibilities of the resurrection. Today is preparation for Easter Sunday. And it's these expectations that we see in this passage that we're going to be considering this morning. If you're taking notes, expectations regarding the appearance of Jesus. In other words, how we expect Jesus to appear. Expectations about the timing of Jesus, when we expect Jesus to do his thing. And then lastly, expectations regarding the way of Jesus, the way that we expect Jesus to work in our lives. Let's look first at the appearance of Jesus. Now, John tells us that... um, This is the week of the Passover, so that means large crowds of people, both Jews and, as he records, Gentiles, are here in Jerusalem. Large crowds. In fact, a first-century historian named Josephus uh, records that some Passover season in the first century, sometime near what John is recording here, that there was an estimated 2.5 million people gathered in Jerusalem at one time. So we don't know the size of the crowd that John is referring to here, but it's, it's not a stretch to say there's a lot of people present. Big enough, in fact, for the Pharisees, when they see them coming out, they're like, oh my gosh, the whole world's going after him. As they're here, they hear that Jesus, a man who was rumored to have just raised a guy from the dead, is now coming to town. In fact, John seems to point out here that this is what is fueling their expectations of Jesus. So here's, here's the rationale. If this Jesus can raise a dead man back to life, if he can snatch him from the grips of the grave and the grips of death, then certainly he is the man to deliver this nation from the grip of Rome. This is the guy to set us free. And the timing couldn't be better because there's this now critical mass of Jews and Gentiles present here that could just take up arms and rout the Romans. Like, maybe even like two million people there. This is ripe for revolution. And so the crowds come out to greet him, and they're waving palm branches. And these palm branches are very intentional uh, symbols. I I don't think that they randomly went and gathered palm branches like, oh, a palm tree. 
In fact, you don't realize how hard it is to gather palm branches until you have to supply them for an entire church. I know this. <laughs> the palm branch meant something for Israel. In fact, it was a national symbol of sorts because two centuries earlier, when Israel won full political independence from the Syrian forces led uh, by the leadership of Simon the Maccabee, it says, history records that he and his army, as they rode back into town, they were greeted with music and they were greeted with the waving of the palm branches. This became a symbol that later uh, they actually coined and mint, uh, minted on coins or forged on coins the symbol of the palm branch during the first and second revolt against the Romans as a symbol of both hope and rebellion. So the palm branch was like their mockingjay. They're, they're waving the branches. It's almost like the three-finger salute. Let me try that again. Thank you. <laughs> like four young adult fans raise their hands. <laughs> But really, I mean, the crowds are expecting their, like, Katniss from District, District 12 to ride out and the chariots on, in flames and, like, the timpanies, like, boom, boom, boom. <sighs> I can imagine this moment as the crowds are literally cheering. They're gathered at what's called the Golden Gate. This is a very royal moment. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of excitement. And then enters Jesus on a donkey. Not even a donkey. A donkey's colt, a little itty bitty donkey. Like this is a donkey that you would feel safe to put your toddler on at a petting zoo. The, you know, the one where you put in the cord and you get the little grain and the food in your hand and you go and feed it out of your, this is the kind of donkey, where, and in fact, he, this donkey is so small that Jesus probably would have had to lifted his legs in order for them not to drag on the ground as he's coming in in his triumphant entry. This is the scene. The crowd goes out to meet a conquering king on a war horse, and they are met with a humble Jesus on a donkey's colt. They're singing psalms of praise and triumph. They're quoting Psalm 118, which is a song of triumph, conquering our enemies. And yet, Jesus appears as the king that's prophesied by Zechariah, a humble king who's mounted on a donkey. On the one hand, he is, well, he's letting their expectations die in this moment. But on the other hand, He's actually raising something new. He is communicating something. This is not just an arbitrary thing. He is communicating something through this entry, through this arrival, that as Zechariah had prophesied, that this is not a king who rides in on a chariot and a war horse. In fact, this is the king that Zechariah prophesied of will actually uh, cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. That this king comes into Jerusalem to break the bow and to usher in peace for all the nations. Jesus did not come in power and pomp to usher in a holy war. Jesus came in humility and self-sacrifice to usher in a holy week. No sword, no shield, just flesh and blood ready to be torn. As much as this was the Messiah that the scriptures had anticipated, this is looking nothing like what they had expected. I'm reminded of a scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as they are searching for the Holy Grail, the cup of Jesus that when you drink of it, you receive eternal life. And so, you know, after a treacherous journey, they get to this point where they're in the cave and there's a number of cups and the keeper of the cup says, 
Choose wisely. Choose wisely because the right cup leads to eternal life. But if you drink from the wrong cup, it will take your life. And the first guy who, who selects the gold, royal, shiny, the best-looking cup, he finds out the hard way that it was not the cup that was fit for a king. What Indy knows is it was actually the humble cup of a carpenter. Expectations of the appearance of Jesus. Secondly, what we see here is the timing of Jesus. Now, the people's songs and their shouts not only reveal how they expect Jesus to appear, but they really reveal when they expect Jesus to act. In fact, as one commentator pointed out, as they're waving the palm branches, this represented people's expectation for, quote, imminent liberation. In other words, immediate freedom. Immediate freedom. What we're all here, Jesus, the time is right. Jesus, we've got all the right pieces in place for you. We're all here. You say the word. You say the word, and our problems go away. In fact, the song that they choose to sing is very telling. Verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This, this word, this proclamation, Hosanna, Hosanna is actually a compound word that merges two words together. Hosanna can actually be translated, give salvation now or give victory now. So it's not just Jesus deliver us, it's Jesus deliver us now. The time is now. Do it now. I think this is where we begin to see ourselves in the crowd, isn't it? This is where we begin to hear ourselves amongst these voices. For so many of us, in fact, I would venture to say for probably all of us, we are all waiting for God to do something in our lives. Maybe it's you're, you're praying for God to save that loved one. Or maybe you're begging God to repair your broken marriage. Or maybe you're trying to conceive. Or maybe you're waiting for that special somebody. Or maybe you're desperate for healing in your body. Or, or maybe you're pleading with God to set you free from addiction. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus, I've been waiting so long. Give victory now. But you see, the Bible tells us of an eternal God who is both wise and patient. In fact, as the Bible describes, for the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. He allows hundreds, if not thousands of years to pass between the giving of promises and their fulfillment. How frustrating is that? <laughs> God, I'm standing on your promises. And God's like, all right, stand there for a while. <laughs> thousands of years. Think about all the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. So many generation after generation after generation, people are saying, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? So here's the tension. While God is working patiently, humanity is rushing anxiously. God's like, you can be anxious all you want, but I'm going to stay on my own timetable here. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say there, but <laughs> the Lord bound my tongue. So here's, this is what it does. It creates a dilemma for us, especially for us in the 21st century, because we are not used to waiting. In fact, we, uh, we hate waiting. 
Think about a bulk of our technology is designed to eliminate waiting. In the 21st century, waiting is an enemy to be defeated. It is something to get rid of. And I think that's why at many times we can feel as if God is against us. God is opposed to us because we're waiting. And waiting is an enemy. And when God is waiting, he must not love me. He must not be for me. He must not care about me. Our society continues to condition for us for immediate results and instant gratification. Why would you wait when you can have it now? Many of us turn to sin because of the sensation of immediate relief. Many of us turn to sin because we, 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 we rationalize it. I've been waiting for God for so long on this. I don't think he's going to come through. You know, I've tried to do it God's way. I've tried to do it the way that the Bible tells me, but I don't think he's going to come through. And so we settle for immediate gratification. We, 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 we settle for the empty promises of idols. Meanwhile, God continues to work, but on his timetable. And for some of us, it may, this may seem really unnecessary. In fact, I think for some of us, we see like stubbornness in God, as if God is just digging in his heels. Oh, you want this fast? I'm going to go super slow. The more anxious you are, I'm just going to take it even longer. I got all day. But this is actually grace. Hebrews chapter 4, a familiar passage that appears in our liturgy often, tells us this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, every time I've ever read this, I assumed it meant what it sounds like. That when I'm in a time of need, which is often, that I can, by confidence, draw near to God and I can receive his grace. That's right. That is true. Don't get me wrong. But there's actually an additional way to in interpret this passage. As, as many commentators point out, help in time of need actually probably is transla better translated as well-timed help or opportune help. And so this makes this idea of help from God explode for me because it means that not only can I come to God and find grace when I need it, it assures me that God's grace is going to find me when I need it most. Well-timed help. Not a second too early, not a second too late. Well-timed grace of God. God's grace and God's deliverance appears precisely when we need it most. Precisely when we need it most. What we see here is that Jesus wasn't bringing temporary relief to the nation of Israel. He was actually bringing freedom and redemption for the nations. In fact, in verse 25, Jesus lays out really the prospect of eternal life. There's almost this like, Jesus, we're not talking about eternal life here. We're talking about political revolution. We're talking about the throne. We're talking about eternal life. But what this teaches us is that while we're always looking for the temporary relief, that God is always working towards our eternal good, which we should understand is always going to put things on a very different timetable, isn't it? Because we want the here and now. Jesus says, I'm doing something in eternity. It means that he takes it out of the temporary timetable and puts it on a very, very different timetable. We see the expectations regarding the appearance of Jesus the timing of Jesus, but lastly, we, say the, we see the expectation of the way of Jesus. See, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people are declaring, 
king of Israel, king of Israel. So just out of curiosity here, where do you think that they expect Jesus is going to be heading at this moment? Go ahead and speak it out. King of Jesus, or king of Israel, the palace. They're expecting him to go to the throne. They're expecting Jesus to roll, make a beeline for the palace, make a beeline to the throne, to liberate the nation of Israel out from underneath Roman occupation and their oppression, to establish it as its own independent nation once again. To the masses, this was the way to freedom. This was the way that Jesus needed to go. This was the movement that Jesus needed to take. And so the idea was that all of our problems, all of our problems as a people, all of our problems as a nation will just be solved if we get the right guy on the throne. Or let me give a more common day illustration. All of our problems will be solved. What we really need is get the right people into Capitol Hill. All right, we just need the right president. We just need to get the right man or woman as in, in the Supreme Court or in Congress. And then, and then our problems will be solved. That's what we need most. The people of God can become so politically focused. And this, this is politically charged songs here. These are politically charged songs. King of Israel. Throughout every generation, the people of God can become so politically focused that they actually miss the movement of Jesus, that we miss the scope of what God is doing, that we miss the scope of redemption. Everything about Jesus seems to be moving in the opposite direction of what people are expecting here. And almost immediately, we're confronted with the truth that Jesus was not making his way to Capitol Hill, but he is making his way to a very different hill called Calvary. And he's going to reach its peak by Friday. And he's going to arrive bound, and he will receive a crown, but it won't be with gold and rubies and jewels. It's going to be of thorns. The path now lined with palms is not a victory march. But it's actually now the beginning leg of the Via Dolorosa, or the, the way of suffering. He wasn't there to conquer. He wasn't there to triumph. Jesus was there to suffer, to sacrifice. Now, the truth is, Jesus could have done everything that they expected. This is not outside the realm of possibility here. He could have leveraged his influence and his power to stir a political revolution. Again, there was potentially millions of people there. He could have just said the word, and everyone would have done his bidding. And if that's not enough, Jesus could have called down legions of angels. It's like the big guns to really push the Romans out. Jesus could have done any of these things. But the question is, if Jesus gave in to their expectations, what would, that, what would that accomplish in the long run? We know Israel, like think about like current events. We know Israel's history. There is always foreign conflict over this strange little piece of real estate. If Jesus would have succeeded in pushing the Romans out, what would that have lasted? One generation, two generations, maybe five generations before some other superpower comes in and tries to take charge of Israel. It would have brought temporary relief. But what would that mean for our eternity? What would that mean for our brokenness and our shame? How would that deliver us from death? How would that deliver us from judgment? See, when this king appeared in Jerusalem, it was to deliver us from a, a much fiercer enemy than Caesar or Herod or Rome. Jesus comes into Jerusalem this week to deliver us from our true enemies, 
Satan, who is dead set on our destruction, to conquer sin, evil force that enslaves us and separates us from God, and death, that whether we want to recognize it or not, is going to be knocking on every one of our doors eventually. See, Jesus is here to conquer our true enemies. But this would require an entirely different way. His triumph would have to be through weakness. His victory would have to appear as defeat. And what we discover on Friday is that there would be bloodshed, but not the blood of a Roman army, but his own blood on a Roman cross. As Jesus, Jesus would shed the blood of the ransom, the blood of a substitute. You see, here's, here's the irony of all this. It wasn't that their, their grand vision of what Jesus was going to do was too big. I think that that's what we can, we can kind of imagine in our minds as we see these crowds and they're expecting the war horse and they got the palm branches and then Jesus comes in in this sort of like anticlimactic way. We can envision it as the people's expectations were just a little bit too big for Jesus. But the truth is our expectations of God will never be too great. We are never running the risk of expecting too much from God, ever. You will never expect too much from God. Our expectations of God will always be too small. And even when our expectations appear to be more powerful and grand, let's be honest. We look at the way that Jesus does things, and sometimes we're like, that is not the way I would do it. Why would you do it that way? I've got a way better way to do it, Jesus. I've got a way better way to get to the goal here, Jesus. My plan is better. My plan is more powerful. My plan is more grand. And yet Jesus is always doing something better. Jesus is always doing something bigger. And Jesus is always doing something more eternal than we could ever imagine. Listen to how the Lord speaks of himself in the, prophet, uh, in the book of Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's leave that up there for a moment. We just need to settle that, guys. There's never going to be a moment where we have the edge on Christ. There's never going to be a moment where we present the plan that is greater than his plan. There's never going to be that moment where our thoughts finally meet that equal place with God's thoughts. He will always know better. He will always be capable of better. He will always will better. He will always do better. Always. But what the Palm Sunday narrative stresses, and this is what we got to be honest about this morning, guys, it stresses that the way of Jesus is often hard to discern. Man, this is hard to discern. Even Jesus' original tight-knit group, like these are the apostles. And John records that they're like, they can't make sense of what he's doing. Could you imagine being Peter and James and John, these guys that have been with Jesus, and, and they hear the cheers of the crowd, and they, and they see what they're, they're coming towards, and they're looking at Jesus on their donkey? Could you imagine the level of embarrassment to be standing next to Jesus in this moment? how much they wanted to run from this moment. This is not what we expected, Jesus. What are you doing? And this continues to this day. 
uh, two years ago on Palm Sunday, just as the leaders of the Coptic Christian Church in Egypt, were, they were just finishing the, the songs of praise of the Hosanna. Hosanna was quite literally on their lips as they're singing as a, a bomb detonated, killing 28 believers in the church. Elsewhere, about the same time in a, in a, in a, in a neighboring city in Alexandria, around the same time, a bomb detonated outside St. Uh, Mark's Cathedral, killing 17. And ISIS uh, claimed responsibility for both. But I remember seeing these, I remember reading the article and seeing these pictures, and I don't, I can't do blood and guts, and, and I can't even do the fake stuff in the movies, so I don't, I don't typically look at those things, but I, I felt like it was necessary. And I remember scrolling through those pictures and seeing the pictures of blood and dust scattered about in the church, the mixture of palm branches and ashes on top of them. And I remember thinking of, like, of all days, a, a day that is supposed to be marked by the triumph of Jesus Christ, and yet is met with such serious defeat. We look at these tragedies in our lives and in the world, we look at our losses, we look at the way things are going in this world, we look at the way that things seem to be declining, we, th we look at the, the broken things in our own lives, and if we're to be honest, it's really hard to understand it all. It's, un it's hard to understand that this Christ, who does conquer, who does conquer Satan and sin and death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that somehow he's still in control. Where is he? How's he working? What is going on? But there is hope. And there's hope in this passage, actually. Look with me in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. But only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only after Jesus was glorified. What, what, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the, the resurrection and the subsequent ascension of Jesus Christ. And so this is what it tells us, that only eyes that have been opened by the resurrection of Jesus can begin the process of discerning the way of Jesus. Only eyes that have been opened up by the glory of Christ. Truth is, we're not going to be able to make sense of all of our pain. We're not going to be able to make sense of all of our hurt. We're not going to be able to make sense of tragedy and loss and disappointment. But we are given the greatest clarity that we could ever receive. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus has risen from the grave. And Jesus has conquered evil. And Jesus is right now actively at work to renew all things, and Jesus is coming back for his church. See, on Palm Sunday, Jesus came as a gentle and lowly figure on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, but the Bible tells us when Christ reappears, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be on a great horse of victory. His first approach, he came to be judged. His first approach, he came to be condemned in our place. But his second, his second approach, the Bible promises, will be to judge the nations, to destroy injustice, and to establish his never-ending peace in the world. He came on a donkey. He returns on the horse, the lion and the lamb. So in closing, what I want to do is I want to call the worship team up at this time. We're going to do a little bit something different in our, in our liturgy this morning. 
As the other gospel writers record, the crowds were spreading their branches on the road, the, the leaves of the palm branches, as a, uh, really the, the symbols of their great dreams of, of what Jesus would do. But I find that interesting. They're actually spreading their expectations before him and envision this on this dirty, dusty road as the hoofs of the donkey trample over them. And I think that there's something in it for us here. I guess you could say that Holy Week is where our dreams come to die. Where we come to lose our lives in order to keep them for eternity. It's been said before that nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. If it's not allowed to die, then it will never be raised. Or listen to the words of Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, and when it dies, it bears much fruit. Through praise and prayer, we wave the branches of expectation. But like the crowds, we must lay them down at the feet of Jesus. We've got to lay those expectations and those hopes down at the feet of Jesus to be reduced to dust and ashes. Believing that what he raises in us and that what he brings to life in us is going to far outshine what we could have ever expected. What Jesus is going to do through our death and our resurrection through him is far greater than anything we could ever comprehend. Far greater than anything we could ever plan for our lives and our family and our church and our city and our nation. So here's what we're going to do this morning. What I'm going to ask you to do is to take hold of the branch that's in front of you. And I'm going to ask you to consider uh, a series of questions. And then I'll just give some time to kind of pause and consider these. Questions like these. What are the ways that I have been expecting Jesus to work in my life? How have I been expecting him to appear? What's the time frame that I've been trying to squeeze Jesus into? What are the ways that my expectations have now been placed on others? In other words, what are the ways that I have placed my God-like expectations on the friends around me, on the relationships around me, on your church? What dreams and hopes need to be placed in the ground in order for them to be raised anew through Jesus Christ. I'm just gonna give some time just for us all to consider that and really to ask God to reveal those things in our lives. crowd laid down their branches before the Lord, what I'm going to invite you to do is to come forward uh, before we receive communion. I'll come back up later and introduce communion. That will come later in our liturgy, but we're going to give some time. I think it's about the, the length of one song this morning to come forward and to lay our branches, our hopes, and our dreams down at the foot of the altar, somewhere on the carpet. It doesn't really matter. But what we're going to do is it's going to represent our trust 
in Jesus. Essentially, when we take that branch and we lay it down at the foot of Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, this is a hope I hold really dearly. This is something I've been holding on to and trying to protect my whole life. But I trust that you're gentle and lowly of heart. And I trust that it's safe in your hands. Jesus, you say that if I hold on to my life, I'm actually going to lose it. So I'm going to lay it at your feet. Jesus, let my dreams pass through your refining fire because I believe that you are making something better, that you are doing something better, that you're doing something good. Let's take this time to respond.